Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This particular sermon is called, Do Not Worry. As the name suggests, it concerns Jesus' treatment of this subject in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says no less than three times, Do Not Worry. When you think about it, worry is not just something we do from time to time. It's a power, a force that can grip us and control us. When we're worried about something, it becomes the focus of our thoughts and emotions. And once worry has a grip on us, it doesn't like to let go. We want to be relieved from worry, but worry itself never wants to be relieved. If one thing turns out okay, worry will move on to something else. If everything is okay in the present, worry will move on to the future. Everything is fine today, it says, but what about tomorrow, next week, next year? If worry can't make its case on the facts before us, it will make up new facts, for it has a very active imagination. Worry is one of the most powerful forces in the world, and yet everyone knows worry makes no sense. Even unbelievers admit that worry at one and the same time does no good and a good deal of harm. It won't change anything about what you're worrying about, but it will change you and not for the better. And even unbelievers sense there ought to be more to life than the things we worry about, which tend to center around the basic needs of life. The ubiquity and yet futility of worry is a testimony within every human being that life was not meant to be lived unto itself, but rather unto the one who created it. But sensing these things doesn't remove our worries and give us peace. Only the Father can do that. And that's Jesus' main point. Because the Father is the creator and governor of all life, and because in Christ He loves us utterly and cares for us completely, we can present our needs to Him and leave them there. We can lift our eyes above food, clothing, and shelter, and have as our chief concern the Father's chief concern, the establishment of His kingdom and His righteousness in this world of worry. One of the implications of His kingdom is that there is no need to worry. Pray? Yes. Prepare? Yes. But worry? No. By beckoning us to join in His kingdom work, the Father is not only giving us a kingdom, He's giving us Himself, and He throws in all our needs to boot. With all this being true, we can see why Jesus expects there to be a marked contrast between His people and the world and how we deal with the cares and concerns of life in this fallen world. I hope this consideration of Jesus' words on worry will make it less of a worry for you. Thanks for listening. This morning we're continuing our consideration of the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we are this morning at verses 25 through 34 of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. This is the Word of God. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. God and Father, bring your word to us now by the Holy Spirit, that we would be your people in every sense of the word, not just saved, but also living out the life that you intend for us to have, to your glory and also to the light of the world, that all would turn to you and be saved. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage is about worry. And it's clear that worry, uh, that Jesus sees worry as a major challenge to people in general and to God's people in particular. Notice how Jesus peppers his remarks with admonitions against worry. Three times he says, do not worry, verse 25, verse 28, and verse 34. And then in the middle he asks, why do you worry, verse 28. Worry or anxiety, being weighed down with cares and fears is the common lot of fallen humanity. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? After all these things, the Gentiles, in other words, the unbelievers, seek. And when you think about it, worry is a force. It's a power that can grip us and control us. When we're worried about something, it becomes the focus of our thoughts and emotions. And if that continues, it will dominate our lives. Once worry has a grip on us, it does not like to let go. We want to be relieved from worry, but worry itself never wants to be relieved. If one thing turns out okay, worry will move on to something else. If everything today is okay, worry will move to the future. Well, that's fine for today, it says to us, but what about tomorrow? What about next week, next month, next year? If worry cannot make its case on the facts at hand, it will conjure up facts. Worry has a very active imagination. Worry tends to dominate the lives of those who do not know God. And because worry never wants to stop, it tends to focus on things people always need, the basic necessities of life. That's what Jesus is getting at when he refers to food drink, and clothing. He's not making an exhaustive list, but he's giving us a shorthand handle to summarize all the basic necessities of life. So Jesus is referring to food, drink, and clothing, as well as the money you need to get them, the job you need to get the money, the qualifications you need to get the job, the relationships you need to keep the job, the goodwill and opportunities you need to advance to a better job, the house you need to store, protect, and enjoy the food, drink, and clothing you're amassing, and the family you need to share the duties of the house. Most all the things people worry about trace back 
to these basic needs. Food, drink, clothing, shelter, whether you have, how much you have, how valuable you have, and how impressive you have is pretty much the sum total of life in the fallen world. And therefore, the quest to obtain these basic things tends to dominate the lives of those who do not know God. And that is Jesus' first main point. It's like gravity. It's a power or force in this world that grips and controls people. But Jesus' second main point is just as important, and that is this. It is not only pagans who can be dominated in this way by worry and anxiety. So can God's people. If it weren't so, if, weren't, if worry were not a real problem among God's people, Jesus would not be emphasizing it the way he does here. You know, just because we have faith doesn't mean our lives are characterized by faith. Faith doesn't work automatically. It's not like a pacemaker. You just install it and then it clicks in anytime it's needed. Faith is like a muscle. It is there, it is real, but we must engage it. We must use it. We must put it to work. And like a muscle, Faith doesn't grow by itself. In fact, if it's not fed and exercised, it will shrink and shrivel. Faith is meant to be fed. It's meant to be exercised. It's meant to be made bigger and stronger. So faith doesn't just show up and then kick out of our lives everything that shouldn't be there. Rather, faith must be fed, exercised, made strong until it grows and shapes and transforms every aspect of of our lives. And this is all part of the lifelong process called sanctification, being made to live out your saintness. In Christ, you are a saint. You can't be any more of a saint than you are. But living out your saintness, experiencing saintness, in other words, becoming like Jesus, that is a process. And that is why Christ died. We have to always keep this in mind. He didn't die just to forgive us. He died to make us like Him. To make us like Him in our character and therefore to share all that is His. Paul says in Romans 8, For whom God foreknew, He also predestined, what? That they would be conformed to the image of His Son. God is going to make sure this happens. This is not an afterthought. God is going to make sure this happens. We're conformed to the image of His Son. Why? That Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. A lot of other people conformed to His image. And then it goes on and says, Moreover, whom God predestined these, He also called and justified and glorified. That's why He did all the things to forgive us, to make us like Christ. So this is the goal of salvation. Forgiveness is a step. It's not the goal. The goal was to take people who have become twisted and tortured bits of humanity and restore them to God's true image and glorify them. Not just so glory is placed upon them like paint on a post, but so that glory shines out of them. And all the things that Jesus is telling us in the Sermon on the Mount are part of the process of God metamorphosizing us from being twisted and tortured to glorious, 
actually shining out of us. And one of the main areas that needs to, to, that needs to happen is this whole area of worry and anxiety. Jesus expects, and this is his third main point, Jesus expects there to be a marked contrast between us and unbelievers when it comes to how we handle worry. This contrast, this, di- this day and night contrast is essential for God's glory, for our own good, and for the good of the world because it's necessary for our witness If we're gripped by worry and anxiety just like the unbeliever, how then do we say to them that God is real, that He is true, that He has come into our lives through Christ, and that His power holds sway over us? But again, we have to remember this marked contrast that should be there is not automatic. We start out just as susceptible to being weighed down with worry as the world is. We start out just as susceptible to having our lives dominated by the things that dominate, the cares and worries that dominate unbelievers. So there's this process involved by which God works in us to change us, so that in this area of worry and anxiety, we are changed just like all other areas of our lives. And we're not passive in this process. God calls us to participate. What is this process whereby we go from being conformed to the mass of humanity to being transformed so that we live out the will of God? And you may have picked up that's Paul's language from Romans 12. That's what we're supposed to do. He says, stop being conformed to the world. In other words, stop being conformed to what makes life in this fallen world go, to the whole set of values, the whole way of living life, the whole set of instinctive reactions, all of that, stop being, stop being carried along by that and instead be transformed. And he says it's by the renewing of our minds. And that's the first step in this process, renewing our minds. In other words, changing the way that we think. Now, we don't want to be people who simply think. You know, as James tells us, if we simply think and don't do, then we're not really thinking. We're not thinking right. We're not getting it. We don't understand the nature of faith. But if we're going to do, the first thing we have to do is we have to think the right way. And so that's what's meant by our minds being renewed. For as it says in Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So how do we change then the way we think? What's this process? Well, first of all, we identify the fact that our current way of thinking and of reacting is a product of a lie. It's not according to the truth. It's a product of a lie about life, a lie about ourselves, and a lie about God. And then secondly, we tell ourselves and remind ourselves the truth. And that, by the way, is what is meant by meditating on Scripture. For the entirety of God's Word is truth, as it says in Psalm 119. When it talks about meditating on Scripture, that is a person going through this process of sanctification, identifying thoughts and emotions and instinctive reactions in themselves and saying, you know what? You know what, Alan? That's not true. It's true that you're doing it, but that's not according to the truth. That's according to the lie. You're not thinking right. What is the truth? Well, there's a lot of times when we're not going to know what is the truth if we don't tell ourselves what is the truth. 
There's nobody there but us. Nobody knows what's going on but us. We have to be the ones who remind ourselves of the truth. And we remind ourselves of what Jesus says over here, or what God said to Isaiah back over here, or Moses, or Paul. And we remind ourselves of the truth, and we go, you know what? It doesn't matter what I feel. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what my instinctive reactions are. Here's the truth out here. This is true. And that's what needs to to shape and control me. And that's why you have so often in the Psalms, you have the psalmist talking to himself. Not in some uh, unhealthy way, but reasoning with himself. You have the psalmist saying to himself, Self, why are you so cast down? Why are you so troubled? Why is your heart so troubled within you? Remember God. He is your hope. Come back to the truth. And so that is this whole process of renewing our minds. And that's what Jesus is doing in this passage when it comes to worry and anxiety. He's telling us what's true. Here's what you feel. Here's what you do. But here's what's true over here. And that's that process of of getting us to conform and to live out the truth. So what truth does Jesus tell us about worry? What reasons does he give us? to take us from being people dominated by worries, just like unbelievers, to being people driven by faith, just like Jesus. You know, because if you think about it, when you become a Christian, from a certain perspective, you have a whole lot more to worry about than you did, don't you? Because when you're, if you're a pagan, you're just living along trying to have a good time every day, trying to take care of yourself every day. You're just worried about those things. You become a Christian. Now a whole vista of new things to be concerned about just opened up, right? Now you have to be concerned about glorifying God. Now you have to be concerned about not doing the things that you shouldn't do. Now you have to be concerned about having a godly marriage, right? Now you have to be concerned about raising godly kids. Now you have to be concerned about glorifying God in the workplace or as a student. Now, all these things that you never thought before in your life have now opened up to you. And from one perspective, from one perverted perspective, you have a whole lot more reasons to be gripped with worry than ever you did before. But Jesus is telling us the truth so that that doesn't happen to us. So what are the truths that Jesus tells us so that we aren't gripped by worry like unbelievers are? Well, the first truth Jesus tells us is that our heavenly father knows what we need. Our heavenly father knows what we need. He knows we need food and drink and clothing and shelter. He knows we need all the basic necessities of life because he's the one who created human life. He's the one who created our bodies. He's the one who created this world. He's the one who created all the things that we have to do and all the things we need. So it's very important that we get that Jesus is not saying food, clothing, and shelter are are unimportant. That is not what he's saying here. He is not advocating some kind of proto-hippie lifestyle where you just, just sit around, exist, don't think about anything. That's not what he's saying. God created us so we need all these things. And that's why Jesus taught us just a few verses to go to pray for our daily bread. That's just another shorthand saying, uh, handle for all the things that we need. Jesus is saying what we find in verse 32 here. This summarizes it. Your heavenly Father knows 
that you need all these things, all these things. The reason for us to not worry is not that we don't need these things. The reason for us to not worry is that our Heavenly Father knows that we do need them. That's the first truth Jesus tells us. The second truth Jesus tells us, in order to not worry, is that our Heavenly Father loves us, will never abandon us, will never fail to care for us. And this is a point that Jesus makes by getting us to look away from ourselves. Because if we're looking at our our own lives, we tend to be too close to it to really see what's going on. So he gets us to look away from ourselves, and he points to other aspects of creation. He points to the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, creatures of far less value and significance than we. Now, it's very important that we get here that Jesus is not saying that birds and flowers are insignificant. He's not saying they're of no value to God. He's saying the opposite. He's saying, look at how God feeds every one of the birds of the air. And look at how God clothes the flowers of the field gloriously. No matter how rich we get, we can never be clothed in the splendor of the flowers of the field that are here today and gone tomorrow. The point is the greatness of the Father's love and care for birds and grass and the fact that He loves us far more than those. For He created us uniquely in His own image to be His sons and daughters. He set us over all the birds and the flowers, over all creation. And when we rejected Him, when we turned against Him, when we mutinied, then He sent His own Son and gave Him up for us to redeem us, to adopt us back into his family as sons and daughters. As Paul says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God has bound up our blessing with his own blessing. And therefore he promises to work all things together for good to those who love him. As one hymn puts it, God sanctifies to us our deepest distress. Even our deepest distresses, God uses them and sanctifies them to them and turns them to our good. So what that means for us as Christians is that there are zero random elements in our lives. No random elements. Everything that comes our way, no matter what somebody else is intending... Joseph's brothers intended evil when they put him in the pit and sold him into slavery. They weren't saying, oh, let's do something good for Joseph. This will be good for his sanctification. We love him so much. No, they were saying, let's kill him. And then, you know, because they want to be super bad, they say, oh, no, let's just sell him into slavery. So they're intending evil. That doesn't change the fact of what Joseph said, well, God intended good. God intended good for this. So we have no random elements in our lives. Everything that comes our way is scripted by God in accordance with his loving purpose of having us grow to be like him, that we may share his blessing. That's this running theme throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about us glorifying the Father. He talks about us being uh, the light of the world. But the center of all of that is that we have to become like the Father. We become like the Father. That's how we glorify Him. That's how we be the light of the world. 
So God's love, His wisdom and His power, they are what free us up to have our chief concern be God's chief concern, which is His kingdom and His righteousness. His kingdom, what is that? That means His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. It means everybody. It doesn't mean... It doesn't mean a military regime imposed on an unwilling world. That's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is hearts transformed so that knees gladly bow and tongues gladly confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the kingdom of God. It means God's faithfulness being seen through people, His goodness being seen through every aspect of life, wherever you go, at whatever level. And what he says is, is that when that is our chief concern, then all the things we need, plus a whole lot more, I mean, just look at your lives. Do you have only what you need? I saw some interviews um, uh, just last week on uh, TV. You know how sometimes a reporter will just kind of go out into the streets of New York or L.A. or something like that and just walk up to people and start asking them questions. And they would ask them questions and say, where are you? Are you rich? Are you poor? And, and, and there are a number of people. They went to a real poor area and say, well, no, I, I am poor. And then they start asking them, do you have a TV? you have a cell phone? you have a computer? you have a car? you have air conditioning? All these things. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to look down the nose or do Marie Antoinette's thing where let them eat cake. That's not where I'm coming from here. Where I'm coming from is that we have been blessed with so much in this country that what we think of as poor would, by any historical standard, any worldwide historical standard, be wealth that, that an ancient king would love to have. God has given us a lot more than our needs. He's given us all kinds of luxuries. But the point here is that Jesus says all these will be added to you, added to you. So Jesus looks not only at necessities, but luxuries as being additions, things that are thrown in. Our focus is to be on loving the Father, walking with Him, working with Him in the establishment of His kingdom, and then God is going to throw in all of our needs plus a bunch of luxuries to boot. Now, that's the way we're supposed to look at it. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't work to provide for our needs. Remember Jesus referring to God feeding the birds of the air. Well, have you ever observed birds? They're busy. They work, they work hard. They work hard for food. That's how God feeds them, by blessing their work. So working in that way is part of walking with God and establishing His kingdom. It's part of us being like God, for God works. Right? That's what we see Him doing in Genesis before any evil has entered the world. God works, so we're to work. If we refuse to work, we're refusing to be like God. And so Paul says, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat, 2 Thessalonians 3. But our work is to be part of God's work. And God's work is glorious. It is much more than eking a subsistence out of the dirt. God's work is establishing His glorious kingdom. So everything that we do in this life, whether it's going to buy bread or whether it's going to, uh, to, to, to make a living or paying the mortgage or changing diapers, everything that we do 
is supposed to be done with a sense of gratitude and privilege as part of God's glorious work. Now, the world is a very different place for those who do not know the Father. The world for them is full of random and hostile elements. Now, in our day, because the gospel over the last number of centuries has so pervaded our culture, um, unbelievers tend to be nevertheless optimistic to a certain point. But if you get cultures that are divorced from gospel truth for a long period of time, they always trend toward a tragic view of life. Now, we have a tendency today to want to glorify the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans so that we can somehow attach all the good things that have come to us to this ancient pagan past. But we're not paying attention. Read the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. Read the Oedipus story. That's their view of life summed up. Life is tragic. All kinds of bad things are out there. It's coming your way. No matter how you try to get out of its way, there's nothing you can do about it. Life is ultimately futility and tragic. The Bible tells us the very opposite. Life ends in laughter. Not silly laughter, because there is the foolish laughter that's like the crackling of thorns on the fire, Proverbs tells us. But the laughter of Sarah, who laughs at the idea of in faith, that God is going to cause her at her age uh, to bear a child. We enter into laughter. Isaac means laughter. Jesus is the laughter of God. And so it's a really a very different view of life. And so the world is a very different place for unbelievers. It's full of random and hostile elements, and so it is really up to them to fend for themselves. They had better be worried about food, shelter, and clothing, and so they are. What do poor pagans seek? Food, clothing, shelter. What do rich pagans seek? Expensive food, clothing, and shelter. Because you see, it not just covers the basic necessities, it also becomes a status symbol by which you know how you rank which is going to give you better opportunities for better food, clothing, and shelter in the, in the future. Now, this leads to a life of futility. But it's interesting that it's very futility witnesses to the fact that there ought to be something more. That this life is not what it ought to be, this life of just seeking food, clothing, shelter, and the job, and the money, and the status, and the, and the relationships, and all of that. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 25. When unbelievers get food, clothing, and shelter, are they happy? When they get lots of food, clothing, and shelter, like Hollywood stars, are they happy then? Often they are less happy with more than they were with little. And that shows you right there the perverseness of living life as though it consists of those things. The unbeliever has the testimony in himself that life was created to be more than that, which means that life was not created to be lived unto itself. 
It was meant to be lived unto the one who created it. And even unbelievers sense this. They try to find a deeper meaning. If you find somebody who becomes filthy rich, you will either find them devolve off into complete unhappiness, their life may become a wreck, or you will find them looking for some kind of a transcendent meaning that they can add to their lives. So the very fact that they do that is a testimony in their own hearts, just for the unbeliever, even before they've heard the word of God, that, you know, this ought not to be all that is. Life ought to be more than this. As it says in the scriptures, God has placed eternity into our hearts. This is also what Jesus is getting at when he says, which one of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Verse 27. We all know worrying does no good. It can't change anything. Furthermore, unbelievers know that. There are a plethora of books by unbelieving psychologists and popular writers who will say this very thing. Worry doesn't do anything. It can't change anything. And they will say, just like Jesus, therefore, don't worry. But the problem is, is they ultimately can't do anything about it. Because that futility is simply a testimony in themselves that this is not what life is. It was not meant to be this way. Life was not meant to be lived unto itself. It's meant to be lived unto the one who created it. But it can't get them there. It can't take them where they need to go. They have to understand the Father. They have to understand God. They have to understand His love through Christ. They have to understand His care, or they can never go where even their own voice is telling them ought to be the case. In other words, living life unto God, that's seeking first the kingdom of God. That's seeking first His righteousness. That's what it means. It means living life unto the one who created it, that's the only antidote for worry. And that is something that can only be done in light of the Father's love and care. Now, so we come back around to seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. Now, the interesting thing is this. That's where we would expect Jesus to end this. With this great saying, what Christian doesn't know seek first the kingdom? If they've been a Christian more than a week, they know that. And we would expect him to end on this great climactic saying, but that's not where Jesus ends this. In what seems like an unnecessary loose end, Jesus says, and this is how he ends, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That is Jesus' conclusion. Not seek first the kingdom. And we need to recognize here that Jesus is not engaging in poor rhetoric. He's actually advancing and finishing off his argument. He is telling us how faith, which seeks first the kingdom, differs from worry, which does not. Jesus makes it clear that he is not suggesting in this discussion that life carries no troubles, cares, or concerns. In fact, Jesus says it does. In fact, Jesus says every day does. Verse 34. Every single day brings its cares, concerns, troubles, and trials. Every single day. 
So if each day brings its own troubles and cares, and we know that for a fact because Jesus tells us that, then how are we to not be worried then about tomorrow? Well, Jesus is not telling us we should take no thought or preparation for the future. In fact, the Bible tells us the very opposite. In fact, Jesus tells us the opposite. Doesn't he say count the cost? And he refers to the person who starts to build a tower without counting the cost. Well, what is that? What is counting the cost? It's preparing. It's thinking ahead and preparing. And the Bible is full of that advice. Twice the Proverbs tell us that the prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. What's that? The prudent person looks afford and they see a bad situation coming, and they do something about it. Proverbs 10, he who gathers in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. That's preparation. That's work. Proverbs 31, 25, the excellent wife smiles at the future. Why does the excellent wife smile at the future? Because of all the prudent preparation she makes, which is described in the rest of the chapter. It's full of all the prudent things she's doing to prepare. So what Jesus is saying is that while we should prepare prayerfully and prudently for the future, we should live one day at a time. So preparation, preparation, prudent preparation and prayer is part of living one day at a time. If you're not preparing prudently, if you're not preparing prayerfully, you're not really living one day at a time. But the other part of that is that we should not take on the burdens and cares of tomorrow today. We don't really know what those cares and concerns are going to be till they get there. Have you ever gotten all worried about something, really worried about it because you see it coming down the road, and then the circumstances change and it just evaporates, doesn't even come about? We don't know what tomorrow is going to be till tomorrow is today. And when we try to imagine them, and shoulder them today, we're just mortgaging the future as well as today. We're ruining them both. We're letting some kind of an imaginary future ruin not only that, but ruin today as well. So we should divide up life day by day into 24-hour periods and ask, what is God calling us to do today? In fact, it seems like Jesus would actually have us divide the day up into periods. Twelve-hour periods, it would seem. Consider John chapter 11. It's after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, but he was, they tried to stone him. And so he and his disciples retreat back out of Judea. And then in chapter 11, Jesus says, let's go to Judea again. He wants to go back. Let's go back to where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And his, and his disciples say, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus answers them in a very interesting way. This is what he says. Are there not 12 hours in the day? Isn't that a curious thing to say? Are there not 12 hours in the day? What he's saying, I think he's calling up the same thing he's saying here in the Sermon on the Mount about not worrying about tomorrow, but taking it a day at a time. It seems like he wants us to take each day 12 hours at a time and ask, what is God calling me to do? What is God calling me to do today from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., 12 hours? What's he calling to me to do? What responsibilities has he laid on me? 
What's he put on my plate? What opportunities is he giving me? What trials and challenges is he sending me this day? And asking me to walk by faith in. Lay those before God in prayer and then serve God in those things. And then ask, what is God asking me to do from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m.? Often it's very different from what he's calling you to do from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Maybe that's why Jesus comes up with this 12-hour thing. I don't know. But God is still calling you to lay before him your needs and then by faith to serve him in what he has put on your plate. So we prepare. We look ahead as best we can. We prepare prayerfully. We lay things before God. We do not become consumed with worry. When we find ourselves worried, we start telling ourselves the truth. We start reminding ourselves of what Jesus has told us. And we say, hey, God doesn't want me to forfeit today because I'm worried about tomorrow. Lay those things before him. Look at this 12-hour period. What's he calling me to do? Lay those things before God in prayer, in faith, and then go forth and honor him. And so I would urge you then, as you come forward to this week, to try it in that way. Try it in that way. There's probably some things that are weighing on you. Uh, I, am, I am a person who is not foreign to know what it means to not be able to sleep at night. I know what it means to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, to remember something, to think of something, and then you're done. That's it. Might as well get dressed. Brush your teeth. Get ready, because you're done. I, I know what that is. We all know what that is, I think. And so... Um, tell yourself the truth with those things. Seek God's specific grace and power to leave those things with him. And then look at your day and divide it up into 12-hour periods and ask, okay, for this 12 hours, what's God setting before me? What's he asking me to do? What challenges and trials, troubles or cares do I have now? And how do I glorify him in that? Ask him for his blessing and prayer and then go forward. As um, Edna knowed the great cartoon character would say, go fight, win. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.